You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Keith Thompson is a former semi-professional baseball player in France, an editorial cartoonist for Newsday, a filmmaker with a short film shown at Sundance, and a screenwriter. He writes on intelligence and military drone technology for the Huffington Post. His first novel was Once a Spy. His new novel is Twice a Spy. Thank you for joining me, Keith. Rick, thanks for having me. Keith, these are both really wonderful books, and you have at the core of them a very great concept. And I think you can tell us this concept without spoiling the books. So talk about what happens to America's aging spies. Well, both of the books are about a spy who has Alzheimer's disease, and as a result, his colleagues view him as a security risk, and they decide to neutralize him, which is spy parlance for kill him. And he has no one to turn to but his son, the horse player, Charlie, who had always thought that dad was an old bumbling appliance salesman, but they have to catch up and and then get, get, get running. You know, at the heart of these books is a great interplay between the father and son as the son gets to know the father really for the first time. And I think that's a, a really wonderful way of creating a character arc based on kind of lies and deception, and that speaks to the whole subject of the of a spy novel, which is all about lies and deception. Professional liars. I've, I've heard uh, CIA uh, clandestine service officers refer to themselves as such. Uh, it, that, that's the job. Now, um, a, as part of the job, of, of your job as a writer, you have to create these professional liars, one of whom has been lying to his family for 35 years and his mind is starting to kind of un- unwind. Um, talk about creating this character uh, of uh, Drummond Clark. When did you encounter him as a writer in your writings and how, how did you start to uh, tell his story and that of his son as well? Well, I'd like to say I made it up. Um, I've done that before in fiction. But in fact, uh, Drummond was based on a couple of true uh, people, uh, actual people. Um, One of them was a a guy I'd gone to school with uh, who spoke seven foreign languages. His dad had been a factory manager for a big American company, I think IBM, uh, like in typewriter plants in Europe uh, while, while my friend was growing up. And while my, as they went from country to country, while my friend would learn the languages and immerse himself in the cultures, the dad was a very much of a xenophobe in the Archie Bunker mode. He adamantly refused to speak anything but English. He would get on the metro in Paris and ride for two hours just to procure a six-pack of Budweiser. He'd go out of his way to watch NFL games. And we're talking about 1985 before there was internet, like where if you wanted to watch a NFL playoff game, you'd have to go to some distant bar and probably the announcers would be in Hungarian. And um, tragically, this man uh, suffered early onset Alzheimer's disease and was forced into retirement. And shortly thereafter, at Thanksgiving, uh, he was sitting at the head of a large family gathering uh, at the table, and he began speaking French. And remember, this is Archie Bunker, who never speaks anything but uh, English. And naturally, his family and friends were 
taken aback and looking around the table, seeing the eyes wide open and the, the mouths open as well, he um, recognized the, the, this confusion on their part. So he switched uh, to fluent German. Um, Oops. So we figured that he must have. You were there when this happened? I, I, no, I, I only heard about it. But I, but in in hearing about it and discussing it with my Friends, afterwards, we figured, well, he must have served overseas in some sort of non-official cover, uh, clandestine service capacity, um, that Archie Bunker was just a cover, obviously. Uh, and it made me curious about what, uh, in fact, happens to intelligence officers when they lose their hold on secrets or when the governor uh, becomes at issue. Um, at the same time, I knew uh, another CIA uh, officer who worked at Area 51, as it's commonly called, the Lake Room test site. And he went off to work every day from the 60s uh, until he retired. And his family just thought that he was an aircraft engineer. But he was working for the CIA on secret projects, including the SR-71 Blackbird, uh, mm -hmm. the, the spy plane. And only in 2007 was he able to reveal to them when the SR-71 project was declassified and his, the, the, the full scope of it, what he actually did. Wow. I, I mean, I remember building the models of the SR-71 when I was a kid. What, what did it do that we don't, didn't know about until 2007? Uh, well, the declassification process is slow, mm -hmm. I, I guess, for one thing. I, I think that kids had die-cast models of the SR-71 well before 2007, but... Um, I think that some of the things he was able to talk about was uh, one of my favorites is the the UFOs that people saw. The SR seventy one traveled so fast and would catch uh, maybe a, a sun in such a way that it would flash that people mis mistook it for uh, UFOs. And the CIA and um, the Lockheed Skunk Works who were testing it and t testing other aircraft didn't really have any protocol for dealing with people who thought that their experimental planes were UFOs like this. That's, it's, an, an, it's one of those 2020 hindsight things like, you know, maybe we should have. So they just said, they just went right along with it. They're like, oh yeah, I guess, you know, it could be. Um, because they, they, they don't want, they didn't want people to know what they were doing. But in fact, it's this plane that travels 2,500 miles an hour, is super high and um, was spying on our enemies. And on ourselves, I guess the people over uh, whatever secrets the people who live near Area 51 had to reveal, probably not much more than a six-pack in the back of their uh, pickup truck. I, I don't think that the CIA was doing any <laughs> reconnaissance on the local Nevada uh, residents. Now, uh, so you heard about these two people, you know, this these two men who had lived lives that, you know, were completely at odds with what they told their families. Did their families feel kind of betrayed, or did they were they proud of what what the what the parents had done? Well, in the first case, the man with Alzheimer's, it's a mystery. I I don't know. Uh, I I can't say for a, a fact that he wasn't a, a quirky uh, <laughs> IBM uh, plant manager. I I don't know where he served. I I don't know any. I've never met him. I know none of the specifics. It just mm -hmm. was sort of a compelling scenario. Um, in the second instance, uh, his family, the, the guy had trained to be a hypersonic flight specialist, so they figured he was doing something and just probably couldn't talk about it. And there were a lot of people in the vicinity who 
had similar jobs. So I think they had a sense. And when they found out and they went, uh, there was a, a ceremony, I believe it was at Langley at the CIA headquarters um, with the declassification when they made a s statue out of one of the Black Blackbird air aircraft. Uh, I, I think they were tremendously proud of him. And mm -hmm. I, I've written about him for the Huffington Post. His name is T.D. Barnes. Um, and he has a couple of daughters, and I, I might get this wrong, but I think that both of them, uh, or at least he thinks that both of them are now in, in the clandestine service uh, in, some, in some capacity. I think one of them works for the Defense Intelligence Agency. I'm not sure what the other one does. And he says it's great because family uh, time is never bogged down by talk of work. No. <laughs> now, uh, when you decided to create uh, Drummond Clark, you also have a, a wonderful character, his son, Charlie Clark. So talk about creating the, the father's son and, and that kind of uh, interplay we have between the, the two. And Charlie's an equally compelling character, too. He's very he's a, a, a gambling genius, in, in a sense, and, and a genius who might have been at Skunk Works himself had he not uh, found betting more compelling career. Charlie isn't a great horse player, but he does eke out a living, which differentiates, differentiates him from 99% of horse players who lose money. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways he's able to do that is he has excellent observational skills. Uh, he's smart. Um, he's able to deduce, um, to forecast a race. And he also has a system of intelligence. He talks to the grooms. He talks to the owner of the um, owner's parking lot at the Aqueduct racetrack uh, in, in Queens, uh, New York, where he um, basically lives. Uh, and he... Um, gathers intelligence. He, he, he does, to uh, in, in the abstract, basically what a, what a clandestine service, what a spy does. And um, at some point, he just um, went a little bit off uh, track. He's the apple that fell not far from the tree, but just bounced a little bit and got bruised. And I think in reconnecting with his father, uh, some of his talents, uh, uh, rather than being used to help him pick a winning horse or more often not pick a winning horse, help him survive. Now, um, you have a pretty interesting career path yourself. You've been a, a professional baseball player in France. You've done editorial cartoonist for the Newsdays. You're a filmmaker, screenwriter. Uh, talk about, uh, tell us a little bit of your path and how you became, uh, I think, one of the nation's leading non-classified experts on military drone technology. Well, playing baseball in France, I was a kid. Uh, if you're playing baseball in the French League, you should be thinking about another career. <laughs> and I had always wanted to be a cartoonist, and I was very lucky to uh, work for New York Newsday, and New Long Island Newsday is, is the main uh, paper. And while I was there, I just uh, thought it might be fun to make a short film. Uh, it's sort of like a cartoon, but with many, many, many more frames, many, many more pictures, 24 of them per second. And it made it into the Sundance Festival. And as a result of that, I got a contract to do three uh, full-length feature films um, for a, a big Hollywood studio. And I worked on studio films for a while. And I was working on one for Paramount, and after a long meeting where I was getting notes on a draft of a script, where 
12 people were hurling notes at me, which is hard, but not unusual. And it, it was a contentious meeting, but not unusually so. No, not, nothing really bad. Um, and for what they were paying me, I would have happily cleaned the bathrooms at Paramount. We, I was walking in my car, and as was my agent, uh, who said, you know, if you're, you could write a novel and you could just do whatever you want. No one would really change anything. You'd, you'd have final say. And I, I, I was 30, and I'd never uh, considered it before. And that night, I was in my hotel room in L.A., and I went, we were living in Palo Alto, California at the time. And I just got online, and um, Stanford University had a adult continuing education class starting in a, a week or so in fiction, and I signed up, and my uh, thesis project got published, and it's it's been good for me because I, I wasn't great in Hollywood because I'm, I'm I'm really not I'm one of those guys who doesn't play well with others as as much as uh, some of the more successful Hollywood. Uh, folks and uh, I've really loved writing novels and so far I've been able to make a living at it. Well that's a great story. Now uh, what movies did you work on? Did any of them get uh, actually come to the screen? I have only had one movie that uh, was produced. Uh, It's called The Mantis Murder. I I wrote it with the intention of it being a cop comedy. It ended up being a horror film and one of the reasons that it ended up so terribly was they made a terrible choice and the director they, they hired me um, <laughs> now is this did, did this show up on the sci-fi channel I it, it's conceivable I never really saw it anywhere besides a video cassette box <laughs> I, that, that was its widest release to my knowledge but I imagine that it, it surfaced other places well that sounds like it's fun to, to have that happen though to, to actually see it on the box eh well, uh, if it has surfaced in other places, probably my enemies are behind it. <laughs> well, let's get back to Once a Spy and Twice a Spy. And, and Now, when did you start writing on military drone technology and start that kind of investigation? Was that part of the, the research for the first novel? Did, did, were you writing for the Huffington Post before you started writing your novel? Or how, where, where did those two come? It's a weird story. I uh, have been asked like how I got to be a reporter, and I don't have any training at all um, other than when I played baseball in high school, the local paper in Connecticut would hire a player to report on each games, and you'd go into the newspaper in your uniform after the games and write it up, and, and it would appear in the paper the next day. That, that was my only reporting experience. But about three years ago, a friend of mine was involved in a venture capital startup of a magazine in Alabama, where I live, and he asked me if I would write an article. And at the time, I had just written one book, uh, Pirates of Pensacola, my, which was my thesis project at Stanford, uh, mm-hmm. which St. Martin's Press published. And I said, I, I don't really do that sort of stuff. You know, other than reporting on baseball when I was 16 and 17, I've never written nonfiction. And he said, well, it'd be doing me a solid because with your one book, that, that'd be like some creds that would help us with, you know, the money issues or, or something. So I wrote an article about a woman who was the proprietor of a barbecue restaurant, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I loved writing the article and doing the interview. I'd never interviewed anybody before um, other than players on my baseball team in high school. And the magazine 
folded before the first issue ever came out. But another magazine bought the article, uh, Portico Magazine, which is a Southern uh, lifestyles magazine. And I wrote an, a bunch of other stories for them and uh, for some other magazines as well. I really enjoyed it. It was a nice break from the writing. And it, it's also a form of escapism. You can just insert yourself in any place that intrigues you. And people talk to reporters, as you probably know, uh, quite readily. And uh, I enjoyed it. And um, about three months after Doubleday had contracted me to write Once a Spy, or had bought Once a Spy, um, I received a tip from one of my sources for the spy book uh, about a spy matter. And uh, I just happened to be talking to my literary agent on the phone that day, which I, I, I didn't do that much uh, at the time. And he called his boss... Um, who was blogging for the Huffington Post, who in turn called Ariana, and I, I wrote the story for them that day, and it, it worked out, and I've subsequently written about 60 more. And I, I'm no expert. I just, it's, I just do a little research, and I just... Well, I think that you cornered a very unusual and really exciting market. I, I was just reading about somebody who was trying to manufacture drones uh, turn the, what's currently kind of a top secret technology into a market market out there technology so that we can all buy our own uh, hummingbird style drones and follow our, uh, follow those we wish to follow. The, the paparazzi, I guess, are really interested in this technology. The hummingbird has been a sensation in recent weeks and I really can't go anywhere without hearing about it, but that's a 40-year-old drone. It's a, just to for, for people that don't know, and in my experience, that's half, half the people I talk to, a drone is a remotely piloted aircraft, so it can be disguised as a hummingbird, or the Israelis have one that's nearly as big as a 737, at least its, its wingspan, and the, these things can fly huge distances. Um, the first drone I wrote about for the Huffington Post is called the Combat, and it's like a bat, and it has bat wings, and it flies like a bat, and it has a bat cover that you put over it so that it looks like a bat pretty convincingly and it can fly into a cave like Tora Bora and perch and record audio and video for 48 hours I think and can be um, <coughs> excuse me it can be monitored the audio and video by uh, military units a couple hundred miles away so it's an incredible reconnaissance device um, and this is a shifting technology, and it's just interested me for some reason, so I've just written a bunch of stories about it. Well, what's so interesting, I think, is uh, the article I read said that the drone technology now is really still primitive. They said it's in the same state as PCs were in 1977, and he wants to see it just really thinks it's really going to explode if they can get clearance from the FAA to put all this stuff up in the air so that everybody and their brother can have a, a drone. There's a there's a great Philip K. Dick uh, novel where uh, on this scene in it where um, a guy is driving and, and like an advertising fly kind of lands on the surface on the windshield of his car and starts broadcasting an advertisement to him and I can see that uh, being <laughs> being a, a real actual potential use. I, I don't know that, that that's... I, I think that you might qualify that by saying that drone technology that is unclassified is at that stage. But this, the CIA and uh, the NSA tend to be a couple decades ahead. <laughs> um, 
as evidenced by the uh, hummingbird. Mm-hmm. It's, it, pe- I think the thing that amazes people the most about this hummingbird drone is that it existed 40 years ago. There's also a fish drone that w- w- goes in the waters and spies, and it swims very much, looks very much like a fish. For whatever reason, it's escaped the public attention, but these things were made 40 years ago. So if you... The, the, the technology advances at really a head-spinning rate. It, it just you let your wildest imagination loose, and I think it's fair to assume that the uh, unmanned aerial vehicle, unmanned aerial system, a.k.a. drone technology is, is there or exceeding it. Well, now, one of the things that I, I love in your books is um, you have a great sense of tradecraft in a, uh, of what's called tradecraft, and that's the... Uh, the nitty-gritty of how espionage works. So, and, and so I wanted to ask you about a term I've heard many times and I have a kind of a vague understanding of, but I, I think you, you can explain it to us and, and much better is cutout. What is a cutout? Well, if I want to send you a message and I don't want people to know that we're communicating, I might find an intermediary who knows nothing about it uh, to get the message to you in some fashion. So that person is sort of cut out of the chain of communication. Um, I might ask the person to just mail an envelope for me on at the mailbox on your block. So the person just thinks he's just mailing a letter for me, but really you have a key to that mailbox, and it's not a real mailbox, and you'll get the message. So he, he has no idea. It's somebody who's to, who, who acts as an intermediary but is um, out of the loop. I, I never heard that. that. That explains it, cut out of the chain of communication. I guess so. Yeah, that's one. That's, that's a, an old. That's a that's a couple centuries old term, I would guess. Yeah, yeah. That's the. Uh, I, I remember reading it in uh, Spy Who Came In from the Cold, some back in the day. I'd like you to talk about some of the the stuff that you write about in uh, Once a Spy and Twice a Spy. Um, you write some really interesting stuff about driving. There's some really great. You have a great sense of of set pieces and creating these scenes, and that's a a real skill. It's one thing to you manage to put big scenes of action with people all over the place and cars spinning all over the place in our mind pretty much just like a movie. It's better than a movie, really, because we get to do it ourselves. And that's a real skill, and it's and I think you really have that down. So I'll talk about uh, crafting some of the set pieces, in particular the driving set pieces. Do you actually go out and try to drive like that? <laughs> I wish. Uh, that would be fun. I... Uh, well, thank you very much. That's nice of you to say. I don't have good answers for writing questions. My process is very much that of when I was eight and played sea captain out in the backyard. I, it, these things aren't premeditated. <laughs> I, 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 I don't sit down and say there should be a car chase. I, I, I really, it's not preconceived acceptance as far as outlining and if people have to get from one place to another, they'll probably be in a car. And uh, of course, you want to make things hard on your characters and have it be more interesting than they get into a car and drive from one place to the other. So that would probably be the extent of my planning. Do you do do you do a lot of revising? Revising once you write a scene like that? Sure, I think that it's hard to describe it in the computer age, whereas people used to do drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll write the whole novel, then I'll go work on, say, chapter 31, and then 
go make take another pass and then just think of something in the middle of the night and make a note and work on chapter 31 or hear something and add to chapter 31 at various points but so it's conceivable that so do you rewrite as you go or do you write try to yes. barf out the whole thing Re- uh, a little bit of both mm, okay one of the things I, I like about um, this your books is the uh, this the various layers of deception, guy, you know, people, guys and disguise, <laughs> as it were. I never thought of the connection between those two words till I uh, read your book, and I think that's an, uh, something that most of us don't think about. That people we have guys and disguise. So talk about uh, creating characters who, you know, when we first meet them, prove to be somebody other than who we first think them to be. I think, insofar as uh, spy novels, the same rules applies in all drama going back to the Aristotle 101. Um, (laughs) A character has a certain objective and he does what he needs to do to meet the objective. So if he's trying to evade detection by drones, for instance, that are flying around looking for him, uh, he will, as on page one, wear a fake nose and alter the shape of his head and wear a wig so that he's not recognizable. That that that's really a, the where disguise. That's the point of disguise is just to say you don't look like yourself. Well, one of the things too is that's interesting about these novels is that I think we're living in much more of a science fiction world than we think we are. That. There's a there's a layer of technology out there as you regard it talked about in being run by the CIA, the NSA, various governments around the world that civilians don't quite have access to. In that, we're a lot. I, it seems like we're a lot closer to the world of Blade Runner than we might ever suspect. I, I wouldn't know. I, I'm <laughs> curious, but I I don't know. Uh, so, well. <laughs> You mean you'd have to kill me <laughs> if you told me your sources? Uh-huh. I mean, because you have some great. There's a at one point. There's a you have some great tech. You talk about <clears throat> people tossing microscopic transponders. Or are, does such thing exist? I don't. You know, I don't remember talking about that in the book. Did that get into the book? Yes, it did. Somebody at one point. It's actually early on where they're saying they're on the run and he's on. They're on the run and they're wondering <coughs> whether somebody sprayed them with microscopic oh, transponders. Oh, oh, right. He he uh, thinks that somebody might have like dart gun style fired a, tr- a transponder into his down coat there mm-hmm. when they were in Switzerland. Actually, there are microscopic transponders. The CIA has something called smart dust that drones the Predator and the, the MQ-9, the Reaper, drop, and uh, it's like it lands on Al-Qaeda uh, members, and they, they're very accurate, and they can follow them using these microscopic transponders. They're not microscopic, but they're the size of dust, um, and uh, they can follow them around. And f- uh, as some one of my sources said, fortunately, these guys only take baths like every couple of weeks, so they can track them for a while. <laughs> well, that's a, uh, I mean, that's such an interesting uh, level. And you also have something too. I have to ask about. There's one point in here where somebody has like what seems like a. It's described to be like a soft display technology where there's light particles rising above it and they tie it to invisibility technology. Now, I know that they're working on invisibility capes that have, like, I guess, built-in cameras that show what's behind you in front of you and what's in front of you behind you, I guess. 
Talk about that kind of uh, invisibility technology. That's very interesting. I think you're referring to a scene where a CIA officer shows uh, someone working for him a movie, and he does so on a screen that emerges from a um, conference room table, and it's almost transparent, but it plays uh, video footage. Um, and it's just, just the way laptops are getting thinner, they'll get thin to the point where we can just project on air or, I guess, air molecules and uh, possibly with a little bit of vapor uh, thrown in. And that exists. That's that's a real technology. And um, I just, in my book, uh, had the, the, the one CIF sort of just felt like using it. It just <laughs> now, you know, I, got a kick out of it. You know, your books have such a great hold of technology, and I'm wondering if you, uh, as a writer, this means you really have to keep up. So, so, uh, so that you know, you it might take a, a while for a book to get into production. So I'm wondering how you kind of like try to stay ahead of the wave, so that when the book lands, that the technology that's in the book is still pretty current. That's a good point. Uh, I am trying to think of something that I put in the book. Oh, right. In Once a Spy, Charlie uh, has a love interest named Alice who works for the NSA. And at one point, she has a, an iPhone that uh, somebody is trying to attack her, and she manages with her the, the toe of her shoe to push a button on the iPhone, and it sends uh, a million-volt electronic current, rapid pulse, uh, through a, a along a copper bar and and shocks the guy, um, mm-hmm. rendering him no longer a threat temporarily, um, and that seemed relatively fanciful when I wrote the book in 2007. And to my amazement, you can buy those things on the internet now for like 80 bucks. And, and I haven't seen an iPhone, but I have seen a BlackBerry. I, they're they're all over the place. Wow. <laughs> now. Oh. This uh, book uh, also poses, both your books pose uh, some of the, you know, relationship problems for for, uh, spies because, you know, relationships thrive on honesty and candor. And when two people are involved in tradecraft and spies, candor and and honesty uh, are at a premium, (laughs) to say the least. So talk about, like, creating a a romance you know, as you do, with two people who, you know, are hesitant to tell the truth lest they end up telling the truth to somebody who wants to kill them. Uh, I think the way it works generally is that the spouses are privy to the, what's going on, but the children aren't. The, at most, the children know that mom or dad works for the State Department, which is cover, the standard cover. Um, and that makes sense because you don't want the kids to be going to school and saying, you know, my daddy's a CIA agent. <laughs> no, that's a, that could be a problem. Um, with this, with your first book, you took us through most of Brooklyn and gave us an, an entertaining tour of Brooklyn. Um, but with your new book, you took us out uh, into the world. Did you uh, force yourself to travel to, to the most glorious locations of Europe just to, to get a, a good feel for what you were writing about? It was a terrible struggle. Actually, it was nice when Doubleday 
suggested a second book, I felt like the kid who was told he could stay outside and play longer. <laughs> and one of the nice things was that I, I had never, I hadn't anticipated it when I wrote Once a Spy, but in Once a Spy, there's a bad guy who lives in Martinique. Mm-hmm. So and I, and I wanted to continue with with that. Um, and I'd never been in Martinique, and I'm, I went, um, and I'm glad I did because I had I not gone, I would have just characterized it as one of like one of the many other Caribbean islands I've been to. It's just a sort of a sandy dot in the Caribbean. But in fact, it it's often compared to Paris, uh, the the main city, Fort de France. But in fact, it's a much more futuristic version version, and it's a, really a world unto itself. Um, Martinique. Uh, I, I I hope that readers of the book will get a sense of that, um, that it, it adds to the book. And it, and with all due respect to Brooklyn, um, Switzerland and Martinique are more fun uh, <laughs> research places. I would imagine so. Now, um, uh, talk about, do you plot, how far in advance do you plot? And you use a, one of the things that you do is with your uh, novels, both your novels, is you have a bunch of fun stuff that you can throw into the plot. Alzheimer's can play a, a role because uh, Charlie's father can slide, and Drummond can slide in and out of lucidity at, at the wrong or the right moments. And you also have all this tech that you bring in. So talk about you know creating a plot and do you, is this just like a, a, a wave you surf? When you're, when you're writing, do you just think, oh, I'm just going ahead. I feel like having, you know, I need a good drone scene now. My method, this is going to sound terribly pretentious, but I, I really am doing not reinventing the wheel in any fashion. I, when I was 27 or 28, read the Poetics by Aristotle. It was a good translation. It seemed like it was written by, you know, somebody now contemporary. And it's not a very long book. It's like 40 words long and it sort of breaks down what works in stories and divides it into three acts and the process for characters and how they change and the challenges that they need to meet to face their greatest fears and uh, and defeat their antagonists. And uh, I'm just basically using the same boilerplate that Aristotle laid out on a tablet uh, (laughs) a couple thousand years ago. Or was it parchment? Probably was parchment. Well, now you're on a tablet computer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so I've regressed. Uh, I I really enjoy the uh, the the betting technology and the kind of numbers stuff that you that you play with in these books, um, and, and especially the the codes. Uh, how much uh, uh, code uh, homework do you have to do to get this stuff right? One of the codes in the book uh, is false subtraction, which I've been asked to explain a couple times, and it takes about a half an hour, so it's it's easier for people to just read the book, but it's just a means of using numbers that can be translated to letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a proprietary technology, that the, a proprietary code, rather, that the CIA used for a while. Um, and uh, for some reason, that's intrigued a lot of people. Well, it's, it is pretty intriguing. Now, um, you have brought with you today a drone. So tell us a little bit about the drone that you brought. How did you get your hands on, on a drone? Is this a, a commercial drone? Yes. Uh, I have. There are mid-sized drones that are about the size of a pizza. Mine's about the size of a deep-dish pizza. I um, what, wrote a story about the German company Microdrone uh, a year and a half ago, 
they had their pizzas being tested by the London Police <laughs> Department who felt that they might be a good replacement for police helicopters because a police helicopter is very expensive uh, and it costs about $900 an hour to just for the fuel. Uh, you also have to put men in it and the men don't often get out. So they figured, well, why not just send a robot with a camera up there to do surveillance? And they found that it was superior to a helicopter because it did a lot of things that a helicopter couldn't do. For instance, uh, if somebody's lost in the woods, and actually the person that was lost in the woods the f was uh, a man with Alzheimer's who wandered into the woods, coincidentally, mm -hmm. um, a man with Alzheimer's. And, and a helicopter is blocked from seeing people on the ground by the canopy of trees. Um, but the drone can just dip down and go in and around the trees like the, the chase scene in Star Wars where they're on those jet scooters. And the, the drone has the camera mounted on it that sends live video feed to the police station or wherever um, the uh, base unit is uh, situated. Um, so this is the wave of the future for police departments, I think, mm -hmm. these drones. And microdrone, uh, at the time, their sort of base model was around $40,000. And that was just um, a year ago. And, and, and talk about technology going quick. Now I have, there's a company called Parrot AR that is a, a French company that has made a really, really uh, low... Um, level version of the same thing that you can get for about $300. Um, and I don't want to diss Parrot at all, but it's it might as well be made in porcelain. It has a lot of bugs. It breaks. I'm, I'm on my fourth. Uh, I've, I, just the slightest bump against the wall can wreck the instruments. But I, I salute them for making this drone. Um, there's, there's video of me flying it on the Birmingham News site if anybody's interested, um, the Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama news. Uh, I, I salute them in the same way with this. I get the same thrill out of this that I did when my wife and I bought the first digital camera. It had like three quarters of a megapixel. It was the size of a Pop-Tart box. Uh, it was like $500, and it took pictures that looked like grave rubbings <laughs> when, when we did it right. But we loved it. We just thought it was, it was incredible. And now, you, of course, you can get like the, the, the cheapest kid camera is like 30 megapixels and uh, cost nothing. And I, I think that Parrot um, has uh, has an incredible achievement despite all of the, the flaws of, of my drone and its uh, fragility. Now, um, you one of the things that uh, you talk about uh, is that, that the Israelis have developed bomb-sniffing mice. Are these like drone mice or are they mice real mice <laughs> no this is this is i, I guess uh, like million year old technology because they just use garden variety mice and uh, mice i have heavily highly developed olfactory systems and m more so i guess than than dogs and they just take a box of mice to airport and, and the mice are trained I, I i reported this story for the huffington post and i it's been a while since i was immersed in the facts but Basically, I guess the mice, like, step on the red button or, you know, have some way of signaling if they smell a bomb. They're trained to smell a bomb. They go through a 10-day training period, and it's just a very cost-effective way of uh, detecting bombs. And the, the uh, Israeli company that offers this service did a test recently where 
they placed 28 bombs on people or in and around a, a shopping mall somewhere, and the the mice teams found all of them. The, the, they found all of them, all 28 for 28. Wow, that's incredible. You know, one of the themes I think I'm seeing about as you talk about this drone technology, is that the the low the the um, lower cost of it? How how, I mean, this is a really cost-effective technology in wherever you deploy it because it takes the humans out of the equation. You don't have to have people sitting in seven thirty-seven sized drones pulling, pushing a button to to drop a bomb. I mean, why bother? I spent a week with a sheriff in Kansas, who. Um, in his town where his office was located, there were, lived 200 residents, and he oversaw a county comprised of six towns, 1,200 people. And his biggest challenge was meth. And he wanted to go find out if the guy in the camper, like out in the woods, was making meth. Um, but he needs to have cause to have a warrant. Um, and if he walked up to the um, the camper, the guy would shoot at him, even though the guy knew him because it's a county of 1,200. Everybody knows everybody, but the guy was on meth and a homicidal drug dealer. Uh, so he and his deputies can't afford helicopters, but they can sure afford a $300 drone. And uh, so this is a wonderful instrument for police, uh, for law enforcement. Uh, on the flip side, it might be the end of privacy as we know it. And <laughs> it's a big Fourth Amendment issue because mm -hmm. uh, the, the Fourth Amendment protects individuals like this meth dealer from illegal search and seizure for, for good reason. I, I mean, it, the, the meth dealer probably isn't the best poster, poster child for the Fourth, fourth Amendment, but uh, the courts have been ruling very differently on uh, uses of such technology, and I think the Supreme Court will rule on this or, or take, a, take a case uh, in the next year or so, and it should be very interesting. Yeah, that's true. As it, yeah, the, the upside of you know, being protected from meth dealers is, is I think, certainly uh, counterweighed by the potential for, as I say, nosy parkers to get their own uh, drones and just watch your see wait for your uh, spouse to go nude sunbathing in the backyard that technology has existed for a long time and th there's right now no defense that i know against it but i guess you could get your own drone and with a quick trip to the hardware store weaponize it and shoot down the other guy's drone <laughs> <laughs> it should make it for some interesting neighborhood disputes i imagine so um how much is it possible to to weaponize drones now? I mean, your own? Can you uh, set up your own private? Uh, I mean, could you just hook a twenty-two to it? And I suppose I'm not really the best mechanical expert, but the history of weaponized drones is this: the CIA or, or the Air Force had the the Predator, uh, circa 1998, the the, the first uh, reconnaissance drone that the the Americans had that could go great distances and a general said this is great you know i can see my enemy's tank can can you can i blow it up <laughs> and so they basically just strapped on a couple of uh, hellfire missiles and that was the beginning of uh, the reconstitution of our entire air defense and offense in uh 2008 more 
aircraft were being produced for the military that were robotic, that were operated by people in base stations rather than humans. Uh, and that trend is just increasing uh, year by year. So soon we'll have uh, fewer people, you no know, people on the field. It'll just be dueling drones out there. It's quite conceivable, and this has been written to death, that as, as soon as 10 years from now, all of our fighter pilots will be sitting in base stations in Nevada while the actual fighting is going on uh, 50,000 feet up w with, a, with a drone, an unmanned aerial vehicle of some sort. And all those video games will finally prove to have been worth something for national security, I guess. Do, do, I mean, is the experience, have you done a remote or seen the operation of a remote like military drone? Is it like a, a video game? I have. I've been to Creech Air Force Base where they fly a lot of the uh, predators and reapers. I've, I've seen those systems uh, operated, and it does look like they're operating a video game, but the, all of the operators, uh, I, I went to Creech in, I think, uh, 2009. To that point, all of those guys were trained as pilots and could fly mm -hmm. a, a jet. Um, now they're starting to recruit video game jockeys and train them uh, non-conventional pilots. Uh, and, but it's still a six-month training program. It's not as simple as operating a video game. As I found out myself with my own drone, it's taken me forever just to learn how to have it hover and go across a room and go left and right. And that's about as much as I can do with it. Well, that's that's certainly enough and, and sounds pretty entertaining. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to see more of Drummond and Charlie. Are, are we? Uh, that'd be nice. Uh, I, I'm writing another book now, but um, Once a Spy is being made into a movie, and I, I think if if that does well and there's sufficient demand, uh, Drummond and Charlie would be happy to come back for another book. Who do you know? What can you tell us about the movie? That I mean, I loved the book, and it really had a filmic feel. It was I'm glad I read it first because I think uh, the writing is, is always the superior way to experience a story. Erwin Stoff, who is uh, best known perhaps for the Matrix movies as well as the recent uh, Academy Award nominated uh, The Blind Side, is the producer, and Sony Pictures uh, has the rights to it, uh, and it's moving ahead. Oh boy, I, well, I can. T have you, do you know who's going to be cast in these lead parts yet? Or I've only heard uh, conjecture, uh, but it hasn't moved to the point where they've signed anybody. Oh, well, uh, we'll look forward to that. What's your next book going to be about if it's not Charlie? It's a secret project, actually. It's, I, it's not about spies, but I just it's just a secret project. Is it fiction? Yes. Okay. Oh, well, we'll look forward to, it, to uh, seeing it. Uh, Keith, you want to go get that drone out? But let's... Uh... If we do that, it, it actually takes about five to ten minutes to uncrate it. Okay. Well, let's, let's uh, uncrate it, and then we'll resume our conversation. Okay. Keith, let's talk about the Parrot drone we just uh, saw a, a very smooth flight with. Um, you control that with an iPhone application. Was that always been the case? And, and just talk about the two, your two parallel experiences a year ago and now. Well, um, I don't want to talk too much about the manufacturers because I don't really know. I'm not privy to their marketing plans. But let's say that the I, I used a, a German-made drone a year ago where... Um, it, it was a much more sophisticated project, the product, the one that the London police were testing out. And it wasn't controlled with my iPhone. It was controlled by a guy who had so much equipment that it had to fit in a van. And uh, 
he sat and monitored that equipment, and, uh, and th there was a second person flying it. Now, this year, um, with this $300 uh, Parrot product, I can use the, the iPhone, and that, that's all I need. Well, it's really interesting to me that, you know, the camera on that thing is really clear. And Now, you say, how long do, can that thing stay in the air? 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Per battery charge. Per I battery charge. Well, that's, that's still not bad if you have a few sets of batteries lined up. Um, it seems to me I can see why the, the law enforcement uses for this. You were just talking about SWAT teams with dental mirrors on poles. Right. If you want to know what's around the curve or the wall or on the other side of the fence, uh, if, uh, you, you can send a drone. It's a lot safer than uh, going and looking and getting shot. Uh, SWAT teams still use uh, the poles with the dental mirrors at the end to see what's around. Uh, although SWAT teams now are experimenting with drones. Um, so it, it has a lot of uh, nice applications for close quarters combat or hostility situations. Also, if we're in Baghdad in a street fight and we, there are guys down the block that are engaged in the classic like machine gun battle with us, we can just send a little cheap drone over and drop a bomb on them and <laughs> You can go home and eat dinner. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it strikes me too as as the the residential and police applications for this are are really remarkable. Uh, how do you see this kind of technology um, rolling out? Do you uh, have you talked to the FAA about what they think about this stuff? I can't imagine they want this kind of too many of these things flying up in the air. It's a very that's a huge long essay question right now you cannot fly a drone mm -hmm. uh, as a citizen there are a few police departments uh, in the United States that are experimenting with them but if I wanted to take out a drone I would be in violation of uh, FAA statutes uh, however um, that is not uh, that, that is just a function of technology uh, um, getting better, uh, just outpacing legislation, and a year from now, the FAA should uh, be on board with drones and uh, will incorporate them into what they're doing. That's all in the works. Well, it's it interests me too because you said this one has that we saw has a two hundred foot range, but the one you had worked the the forty thousand dollar version <laughs> had, could go eight thousand feet, and I can't imagine that forty thousand dollar version costs a lot more now. Or is uh, I don't know what the pricing is. Again, this is I, I I really am not that knowledgeable about pretty much the the subject in general, <laughs> frankly. But uh, about the the marketing and the pricing, I, I would imagine that their prices decrease. They might have another a new product now. That product certainly is a, a thousand times stronger than mine and it it goes much higher it's used largely for surveying for ma mapping and uh, th that sort of thing um, but uh, this is uh, this is certainly fun to have my own <laughs> you know I, I'm if you have here the the kind of the toy version of the forty thousand um, uh, dollar CIA drone and you know the toy version of the the predators and some of the military stuff out there it suggests to me and I would imagine it suggests to you there's there's a lot of novel plotting aspects there and also um, it can't be too long before we can get the $300 uh, maybe not smart dust but uh, smart dirt clod 
<laughs> uh, transponder. I think it's all, use your imagination, and at this point it's all achievable given an existing technology that's that's been declassified. It's, as I say, I think we are living in a much more science fictional world than we realize at this point, and it'll just kind of emerge uh, like from the fog for us. Yeah, it's certainly at the point where there's so many possibilities where it's either exhilarating or when you start to contemplate it, your head hurts because there's just so many things to think about. So, Keith, tell us about your adventure with the uh, Bond villains. <laughs> well, th- this, wasn't, this wasn't me. This is somebody I know who um, is an American but has an international bunch of friends who are like a, six guys that he went out yachting with that are like a bunch of Bond villains. And they went to another country, and they came back to uh, Mobile, Alabama, and you are required to check in with Customs and Border Patrol. So they called up the CBP, um, and they said, well, it's us, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's me, uh, Bob, uh, the captain, and I'm with my friends on the SS Bond villain, and we've returned from uh, six days of boozing and womenizing and carousing and smoking cigars, and uh, here we are. Uh, so the CBP was closed. They close every day at 5, and what will happen the next day is that they'll either be inspected or not. And in this case, they were not. And in about 19 uh, and 20 similar cases, there's no inspection uh, just because the Coast Guard has so little manpower. Uh, An inspection means the Coast Guard comes to your boat the next day, which means if you have contraband, you have time to get it off. Uh, And sometimes they'll say, come to our main customs office, which is across uh, Mobile Bay. This is in Alabama. Um, and this isn't, I don't mean a single out Alabama, this is in all secondary ports uh, in the United States. The, the, uh, the patrol is, is very porous. Uh, so these ports, as opposed to Houston or New York or New Orleans or Long Beach, are, um, are very sexy targets for terrorists, and I think there's a great fear on the part of the Coast Guard and on the part of Homeland Security and on the part of anybody that has any experience in this that the next 9-11 will be waterborne. Not a particularly happy topic, but thankfully it hasn't happened yet, and thankfully the intelligence branches of these forces are very good, and they have uh, forestalled attempts. One of the things, again, that your book points out is how much smaller all this stuff is, how much cheaper all this stuff is. And as this happens, it becomes less and less possible to to just put up a giant, you know, force shield. We don't have the Star Trek force shields yet. So we can't put the the cone of silence around America. And so I think it suggests that we're going to have to find a better way, whether it's more technology or better diplomacy or some uh, combination thereof. Well, drones could come in handy in Mobile Bay because you just like the, just the little guy that I have, the $300 version uh, or next year's version, which doesn't break as much, really six or seven of those will be able to g- give you much better intelligence on what's coming in and, and what's going on. And if somebody is trying to offload a WMD uh, uh, a weapon of mass destruction off his yacht during the night be- when he knows that the Coast Guard is coming the next day, well, you'll be able to see him. Uh, WMD, that's mean washing machine of mass destruction. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yes, in, in, my, in, in my novel, they have concealed the atomic demolition munitions uh, inside a washing machine because 
the, it looks like uh, a washing machine entered, and the weight is about the same, so it's a good concealment device. I've been speaking with Keith Thompson. His first novel it was Once a Spy. His newest novel is Twice a Spy. Thank you for joining me, Keith. Thanks, Rick, for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.